Revelation chapter 4. I'm going to read two chapters, Revelation 4 and 5. What we have in these two chapters is one scene, in some sense, in two acts. Heavenly worship in the heavenly throne room of God, where in chapter 4 they worship God who sits on the throne. In chapter 5 they worship as well the lion and the lamb who is slain for the sins of his people. So let's listen carefully to this beautiful scene as John invites us to see what he sees in this glorious vision of the throne room of God. Revelation chapter 4. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book in its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain 
having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And thus ends the reading of God's perfect word. As we prepare to consider his word, let's turn to God in prayer. Lord God, we rejoice that you have given us the scriptures and that in them we know that you speak your word to us exactly what we need to hear so that we might respond in faith and obedience. We pray, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, you would make us ready to hear and to respond and to know you and worship you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So last week, Pastor Shishko beautifully introduced uh, a series that we're beginning. And he reminded us that God, in his word, speaks to us in a comprehensive way. That in the scriptures, we have, by the power of the Holy Spirit, everything necessary for life and godliness. And as we begin to think about what the scriptures call us to and consider the life of Christians in the church. That's really the overarching theme of this series. We're beginning by considering the most important thing that the church does. Worship of the living and true God. It's the most important thing that we do as the people of God. And Our particular accent over the next few weeks is to focus especially on the public worship of the people of God, the corporate worship of the people of God as we come together to sing and to hear from God's word and to respond in faith and obedience. And since that's going to be our focus, I wanted to read just one more paragraph from Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21, to remind us of the significance of what we do as we come together in worship. This is Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 6. It begins by reminding us that there's no particular place 
what we're called to worship. In other words, no temple anymore that we're called to worship in. And it says there that neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel either tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed. And as we understand the scriptures, that means that the place now where we worship is in the church with the people of God. We are the temple of the living God. But then it goes on to describe the worship that we should give to a holy and almighty God. It says, but God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and truth, as in private families daily and in secret, each one by himself. But then listen to this. So more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected or forsaken when God, by his word or providence, calls us to them. Most solemnly, as we come to worship, most solemnly we do that with the people of God on the Lord's Day. That's what we're doing right now. And as we consider that kind of public corporate worship over the next few weeks, we're going to hear next week about what happens in worship, both what do we do and what do we expect God to do as we participate in worship. And the weeks after, we're going to consider praise and preaching and baptism and the Lord's Supper. But today we're going to consider the most foundational question and issue that we need to deal with. Do you recognize that God made you, that God created you, that he designed you for worship? That your very existence and the fact that you are able to wake up this morning and breathe and live another day is a call from God to sing praises and to worship him And that today, we especially do that together. And that there's something unique and significant about the public and corporate worship of the people of God. That's what we're going to wrestle with today. The most important question that every man and woman must answer, and understand when I say every man and woman, I mean believer or unbeliever. The most important question that every single one of us must answer is this. For what purpose do I exist? Or if I can say it in a little bit different way, what was I created for and what was I designed for? It's the most important question that we need to answer. In fact, that question and the wrestling that we do with that question actually kind of infiltrates everything that we do in our lives. So it's interesting in the recent books and Uh, instruction about leadership that one of the most common things you hear now is that when you lead an organization it's not enough to simply tell people what they need to do and what goals they need to aim for but you need to explain why the organization exists and if you can't explain that and if everybody involved in the organization can't can't embrace the same purpose and existence you fail to lead them and that's just that same question right why do we exist What's our purpose? That same question needs to be asked of the most basic tools that you use each and every day. For instance, a hammer. If you're going to use a hammer, you need to understand what it's for. And maybe as well what it's not for. It's not a screwdriver. It's not a wrench. It has a particular purpose to hammer and to drive nails into a board. And it only works best when you use it properly. It's true about technology. In fact, maybe even more so, at least the results of using technology improperly 
creates more destruction. That's why every time you buy any kind of machinery, it comes with instructions. This is what it's made for, and this is how you use it. It comes as well with warnings. One of my favorite is if you read a box that a lawnmower comes in, it says you must not use this lawnmower as a hedge trimmer. Every lawnmower, you're warned about that and the consequences of what happens if you use it for the wrong purpose. Even comes with disclaimers. If you use this tool or this piece of machinery in the wrong way, the creators and manufacturers of it are not responsible for the results. My son works for a robotics company. They uh, manufacture delivery robots that can carry up to one ton of material. They can go up small inclines and down small inclines. They can travel and navigate elevators, but they can't go up and down stairs. And when they're teaching hospitals how to use these, one of the things they say is, you might wonder, can our robot go downstairs? And the answer is yes, one time. We need to understand the purpose for which these things exist. And the purpose is determined by the one who designs and creates it. And if that's true for machinery and things made by human hands, how much more is that true for things made by the one true and living God? Psalm 19 gives us one uh, one explanation of why the creation exists. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. All of the creation, everything made by God exists ultimately to glorify God and to proclaim and reveal his glory to the world. That's true for all of creation. But if it's true of all of creation, It should be uniquely true, significantly true for the crown of creation. Men and women made in the image of God. Men and women, every single one who's ever walked the earth, exists to glorify God. Ephesians 1, as it describes God's eternal plan for creation, it keeps using this phrase that this is done to the praise of his glory. That's why we exist and we exist as well to glorify and enjoy God and if I could put in a plug uh, you know hopefully this sermon will encourage you to come to evening worship as well because of what happens in worship but tonight you'll hear that question and that answer that we're created to glorify and enjoy God explained in deep and beautiful ways so come back for that but that's what we're created for to glorify and to enjoy God And everything that we do should have that purpose in mind. But it's especially in worship, in our families, in and private, but most solemnly in corporate worship, what we're doing right now, that we have the privilege to glorify God in unique ways. And for men and women made in the image of God as the crown and head of creation, our call in subduing the earth and ruling over it and exercising dominion as image bearers of the one true and living God, we possess a unique role in the worship of the creation. We're to lead all of creation in the worship of God who is worthy to receive his praise. So how do we answer that question? Why do I exist? What were you made for? 
You were made to glorify and enjoy God, and you find the fullest expression of that purpose in the public and corporate worship that we have together as the people of God. We're going to consider that for a moment this morning. We're going to consider it in particular in uh, the periods of redemptive history. We often talk about the history of the world from the perspective of God as, as being tied up in creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And we're going to talk about how in each of those four periods of time, we have a particular call to worship God. And I can summarize them in this way, that in creation you were made by God for worship, that after the fall you're called by God to worship, that in redemption God saves you for worship, and that at the consummation you're raised for an eternity of worship in the presence of God. As we enter into that, I want us to consider for a few moments what happens in worship as we see it described in Revelation 4 and 5. As we look at these two chapters, we need to answer at least this question. The vision that God gives to John, is it giving him a picture of something in the past, something in the present, or something in the future? Many people read it and think this is something future. Only something that happens at that great and glorious day when God gathers his people to himself. But I'm going to give you that unsatisfying answer that pastors and theologians give to such a question. The answer is yes. All three of them are in play in Revelation 4 and 5. John is given a particular vision on a particular Lord's Day when he's gathered up by the Spirit into the heavenly throne room of worship. Undoubtedly, if the Apostle John was still alive today, he would tell you that in his whole earthly existence, this was the most glorious Lord's Day that he ever experienced. As he gazed upon God seated on his throne and the lion and the lamb who was slain for the salvation of the world. And yet, the Bible teaches us That when we gather for worship, that we are in some sense, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by faith, gathered up into the heavenly throne room of God. And we participate in the same kind of worship, even right now. And the Bible also teaches us that that weekly pattern of Lord's Day by Lord's Day worship, as we gather together with the people of God, is a foretaste. We might even say a dress rehearsal. For that great day when we will participate in that worship no longer by faith, but now by sight. I want us to see that as we look just briefly at these two chapters. John receives at least three images in this vision that are significant for us to consider. The first is this. He's given a vision of the heavenly throne room. Remember the context in which John writes and receives this vision. He's exiled to the island of Patmos, exiled because of his faith as a punishment for his faithful proclamation of the gospel. He's a pastor and apostle separated from his congregation and isolated from public corporate Lord's Day worship. He's seemingly alone. And it's as if the spirit of Jesus says to John, I know you're sad. Let me pull back the curtain that separates heaven and earth so that you can see what happens when the people of God are gathered 
for worship. He invites, he welcomes John into the divine drama of worship in spirit and in truth in the heavenly throne room. Maybe you've experienced this before where there's a particular story, whether it's on a stage or on a screen, that so captures you that you feel as if you're actually in the story itself and you begin to speak to the characters behind the screen. I was at a movie once with Anne early in our marriage, a particular movie with lots of suspense where people were making bad decisions and it was leading to bad consequences. And at one point I was getting kind of frustrated and I said very loudly, don't do that. (laughs) And everybody looked at me. John's being invited into the greatest drama, a cosmic worship service with myriads and myriads of angels who bow before the heavenly throne of God. What John sees and enters into through a heavenly door, it says in chapter 4, verse 1, is real. And maybe, I think we can say, more real than any worship experience that we've ever had bound to this earth. And yet what we participate in by faith today is what John experienced by sight. And we experience now by faith. What John sees, we participate in right now. And maybe you're wondering how, or you're asking, prove it. So let's look at Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 is a call to worship, a reminder of what we're doing in worship. And beginning in verse 18 of Hebrews 12, he describes worship before the coming of Jesus. They come to Mount Sinai, where there's thunder and lightning. And if you touch the mountain, if you even approach the mountain, you die. But then notice what he says in verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. It doesn't say you will come. It says you have come. As you worship God, you're there in the heavenly Jerusalem with, and this sounds just like what we saw in Revelation, myriads of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, which we're going to come back to at the end because it's a beautiful picture and promise, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Sounds a lot like Revelation 4 and 5, doesn't it? And as we come, even right now, we come by faith into the very throne room of God. He gathers us into his presence as we worship him. Don't miss this, friends. This is maybe the most important thing for us to hear this morning. Don't miss the present right now promise of Hebrews 12 and Revelation 4 and 5. For believers, for those who are in Christ and trusting in him as their perfect savior, what Jesus unveils to John is very real. You have come. What, Jesus, or what John experiences by spirit-given sight, that particular Lord's Day, you and I receive and experience and participate in by faith today. And one day, with 
renewed bodies and new eyes, we will experience that same worship by sight. So he has a vision of the heavenly throne room, and it's a vision for us. But he has as well a vision of the almighty God on his throne. It's the whole focus of chapter 4. Notice in verse 2, it says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. This is an image of the almighty God as the conquering king. With the nations, as we're told in the Old Testament, as his footstool. It's one of my favorite images in the whole of the scriptures. I love a good footstool at the end of a hard day because it reminds me that I can rest. And God, seated on his throne, puts his feet on the footstool of the nations. Because he's won the victory. He's ruling and reigning and resting as our conquering king. And notice all the things that are tied up in this image Are there earthly kingdoms that have crown jewels that are amazing? Of course, but nothing like the crown jewels of our God and of our king. Are there nations that have beautiful thrones and large palaces? Of course, but notice this throne room. His throne is surrounded by 24 other thrones filled with 24 elders. There's lightning and thunder from heaven. There's seven lampstands and seven spirits, a sea of glass like crystal. In other words, the seas have been calmed. He's brought peace. Four living creatures that defy explanation. So all he can do is compare them to lions and other creatures. And they're all bowing and worshiping, leading a cosmic worship service of praise. That's what happens in the throne room of God. And then this chapter reminds us why the Lord is worthy to receive such praise. First of all, in verse 8, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. He's three times holy. If you're familiar with Isaiah 6, you can't help but have that in mind. The holiness of God that's so glorious that Isaiah falls on his face and says, I am undone. And yet we come before that God three times holy. The Lord God Almighty who has absolute authority over everything. He's infinite and eternal and unchangeable. He was and is and is to come. And in verse 11, we're told that he's the one who created all things. And because of his will, they existed and were created. He's worthy. That's, that's really what we need to grasp from chapter four. That God is worthy to receive glory and honor and thanks and power because he's unlike any other being. Isn't that the foolishness of idolatry is worshiping things that are like us? Psalm 115 describes the foolishness of idolatry as creating images that have eyes but cannot see, ears that cannot hear. What a foolish thing to worship that particular idol. Isaiah chapter 44 describes idols as being made with the same wood that you use to heat your house. And we might think, oh, we're not that foolish today. We don't build idols. Today's actually the perfect day to talk about it because the the greatest idolatrous worship in our nation happens tonight. The idols of sports and entertainment and celebrity and leisure are on display and practically our whole nation stops to participate in that. But many of them don't stop to worship the one true God. He's worthy. 
to receive our praise. And because of that, he defines how we worship him. We need to understand that, that all worship is directed and defined and regulated by God. And all worship is a response. The creation responding to the creator. We see that in the design of our worship. Every piece of our worship is either God speaking to us or us responding in praise because of who God is and what he's done. So it's a vision of the Lord. And then he has a vision of the Savior. That's the focus of chapter 5. There's this book or scroll. No one can open it. This book, and I don't have time to kind of dig into why I, I say this. If you want to know more, I'm happy to talk about it. But this book, it's not the book of life, as some people might think it is. This is the book of God's decrees. Everything that will happen in the whole of history that God has decreed before the foundation of the world. So that when the scroll is open, beginning in chapter 6, it unleashes God's judgment against sin and all the different sevens that you find in Revelation are unleashed when this book is opened. But he's not just a judge, he's a savior. And we see both on display in the book of Revelation. With that important book that holds the keys to unlock all of history, unable to be opened, John is weeping until someone says, No, look, see, there's one who can open it. The lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Israel. And notice how it describes him. He's the one who overcomes. He conquers Satan and death. He defeats sin forever. He brings the saving, vindicating power of the divine warrior to bear on the whole of creation and the whole of history, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But then notice it says, John looks, and what does he see? A lamb. The king of the jungle and a weak lamb. And not just any lamb, this is a lamb that was slain. The divine warrior becomes a dying savior. It's a great mystery in the story of redemption and a great mystery in worship that an infinite, eternal, and holy God on his throne is visited by finite, sinful creatures who have to ask the question, how can I stand before this transcendent and infinitely powerful and holy God? And it's only because he comes to you. He makes himself known. He's imminent in his son who came down and laid down his life for sinners. And they do the only thing that you can do when you meet such a savior. In verse 9 of chapter 5, they sang a new song. The Lord God in his son has revealed himself in new and glorious ways and they must respond. He reveals his salvation in new ways, prophesied in the Old Testament, but revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. And you have to sing a new song in response to the new things that God has done in Jesus by his death and resurrection. And so they respond in worship. Understand, friends, what we've seen in chapters four and five of Revelation. We've seen in chapter four that the Lord our God is worthy 
to receive praise because he's three times holy. He's an infinite, eternal God. He's all-powerful, the creator and sustainer of everything. And so we worship him as creator, but we also worship the lion and the lamb who overcomes the sinful brokenness of the world in which we live, who saves his people by his death and resurrection, who purchases a people for himself by the shedding of his blood, a people that are described in chapter 5, verse 9, is coming from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and he makes them a kingdom and priests to worship God. Now we're rounding the corner toward the finish line. But, but don't miss the glories of our God and of our Savior as they're revealed in this, these chapters about worship. He came to seek and to save the lost. And he came to seek worshipers. And he provides the way by his son who purchases us by his blood and makes us a kingdom of priests to bring worship to God. Now, with that underneath, we're going to quickly consider what this means for every man and woman who's ever been created. And coming back to that question, what were you, what were we made for? And we were made for worship because God is worthy to receive it. We see that in creation. God created us. He made us. He designed us for worship. And that's true of every single human being made in the image of God. We see it all the way back in the garden. The garden is, is like a sanctuary for Adam and Eve. This is where God comes to meet with them, to, to walk with them in the cool of the day, to have fellowship with them. And this is where they worship God. And they're placed there as those made in the image of God, as those created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures to rule and to subdue as kings. Adam was also called, and we're called with him as prophets who who name and proclaim the commands and the glory of God. But Adam and we in his following are called as priests as well. He, uh, Genesis 2 verse 15. It says there that the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. That's garden language. It has the idea of breaking ground. But I want you to understand that it's also priestly language. That word cultivate can also mean to work or to tend. And in the book of Numbers, chapter 4, a a chapter that's all about the priests and the Levites, that word is used repeatedly, that they do the work of the priest, that they perform the work of a priest, that they serve in the temple. It's all the same word. We find it in the New Testament in Romans 12, verse 1, when it says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. That's the same word now in the Greek. So it's an act of worship that he's calling him to in Genesis 2.15. That word to keep can also be translated to guard or to obey. It's what the cherubim do after they're thrown out of the garden to protect this garden sanctuary, to keep them away from the tree of life until they're ready to eat from it. It's a word that's used for Abraham as he's to to keep the covenant. It's the word that's used for all of Israel to observe the Feast of Tabernacles in Exodus 12. It's priestly worship language. And when those two words are used together, to guard and to keep, 
Everywhere else in the Old Testament, six times, it's always speaking of the priests and the Levites. Adam, in the garden, is called to keep and to grow and to care for the creation, but he's called ultimately to worship the God who created him. And he's called, as the crown of creation, to work and to keep and to tend the garden and to exercise dominion until the whole of creation joins in worship to God. Revelation. Chapter 21 and 22, that's the goal. And it was given to Adam from the beginning. Now he fell and worship was distorted. But that same, that same impulse is in every single being who's made in the image of God. So the writer of Ecclesiastes says, he has made everything appropriate in his time. He has also set eternity in their hearts. Isaiah 43, verse 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. We're all made to worship God by the very fact that God created us in his image. That image is distorted by the fall. Worship is distorted. And and yet we're still called to worship. You know that, right? All creation. So in Romans 1, when it describes uh, the light of nature, it tells us that the light of nature informs every single human being in the world throughout history that there is a God and that he deserves their worship. But they distort it and they change the worship of God to the worship of the creation. And therefore, they need to hear the gospel so that they would worship rightly. Paul, in coming to Athens and speaking to this crowd, who would, if words, such words were used at that time, describe themselves as atheists and agnostics. And he says, and yet you are very religious. You've built a statue to the unknown God. And you try to worship him in the way that you've designed, but God will not be constrained by your view of worship. God should be worshipped as he designed. And then he says, that God calls all men everywhere to repent and then to worship the one true God. Do you see how this should give us great encouragement in our evangelistic witness? That God calls people to worship and therefore we can call them and invite them to worship as well. And that as they come for worship, that God calls them to himself by the power of the gospel. We heard that at the very beginning of the service. What was the opening call to worship? Praise the Lord, all nations, laud him, all peoples. And so all people, including those who are not yet believers, need to be here because they were designed for worship. And what's amazing is that it's in here as they worship and hear the gospel proclaim that God grabs hold of their hearts and makes them his own. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 in writing about orderly worship that's according to God's word said this, but if all prophesy... And an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters. He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God. So all men and women were created to worship. All men and women are called to worship. And then lastly, in these two parts, for those who are in Christ, you've been called and saved for worship. We see that all over the book of Exodus. When Moses is speaking to Pharaoh, he, speaking on behalf of God, says, let my people go so that they can worship me in the wilderness, so that they can worship me 
on my mountain. And Exodus 15 is there singing in praise to God because he's delivered them. This is part of what they sing. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. He goes on to say, you will bring them and plant them in the mountains of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. And then a couple chapters later, he describes Israel, those who've been redeemed and planted on his mountain as a nation of priests to the Lord God. Friends, we've been called as those who know the glories of God in Christ worship him because he's worthy to receive our praise, not only because he created us, but because he saved us by the blood of his son. And we are now, by grace, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together in worship. But lastly, friends, and I want us to end with this in mind, if you are in Christ... If you are trusting in him as your perfect savior, then one day, when you pass through the veil of this life, you will be raised for an eternity of worship. Is that a word that we need to hear? It's a word I need to hear. Many of us in this room have lost loved ones in the Lord. Remember I said I was going to return to the spirits of the righteous made perfect? When we gather for worship now, the angels and the spirits of the righteous made perfect are standing and bowing before the throne of God, joining us in worship. My grandmother and my grandfather are there right now. And many of you know people who are there right now praising God. And one day, when the Lamb is our temple, as described in Revelation 21 and 22, We will worship with them no longer by faith, but by sight. And so what we do right now is glorious as we're standing before the throne of God by the Spirit. But it's just a dress rehearsal for that great and glorious day when we will look upon our Savior's face with new eyes and uninterrupted worship forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord God, we rejoice in the promises of your word that are true and righteous altogether and that strengthen us to maturity in faith. Lord, we pray that this picture of the glorious heavenly throne room would strengthen us as we continue in this earthly pilgrimage looking forward to the day when faith will become sight. Lord, strengthen us for that pilgrimage. We pray in the name of your son. Amen.